Ours is a difficult text today, and we need the Lord's help as we look at this to understand it and then to apply it. Uh, when my family moved to Coldwater, we inherited a tool, um, the kind of tool I'd never seen before. It was aluminum. I think it had four pieces, um, which included a long bolt and a nut, and it sat in a utility uh, room in a drawer for years. So I'd forget about it for months at a time, and then I'd be digging around that drawer, see it, take it out, try to figure out what purpose this crazy-looking thing served. I didn't want to throw it away. That's Karen's thing. She's, she's, I think every marriage has something like this. You know, she's the one who's like, you haven't used it for a year? Get rid of it. So I hadn't used it for 15 years. That's more like my timetable. And since I had no idea what it was, I finally took Karen's advice and got rid of it. So let's say that thingamajig was really valuable. Like all the other things you've ever told me to throw away. <clears throat> but since I didn't know what it, it does, it, it did me no good. It's just taking up space. Likewise, some people have an infinitely valuable Jesus, and they don't know what he does. I mean, lots of people. They forget about him for months at a time, sometimes longer. Every once in a while, when they remember him, they think they should do something with him. But they're not sure what. And so they usually go to church for a week or two, try to get a handle on what he does, and, and when they can't figure it out, they put him back in the drawer. What does Jesus do in our world and in our lives? And what is our part in that? If we don't know, he's going to end up being a decoration or a religious collectible taking up space. Last week in John 6, we saw people tried to put Jesus to the wrong use. When I had that tool there a few times, I thought, maybe this could be used this way. But, you know, Early in John 6, people attempted to make Jesus, the leader of a political movement, in the hope of building a better society and in the hope of crushing their enemies, people are still trying to do that. But that's not what Jesus does. And those who try to force him to accomplish that are going to be disappointed. How then do we relate to Jesus? What are we to do with him? Now, you may think, you don't do anything with him. He does something with you. And I agree with the sentiment. He's the boss and we're not. But even after we get that straight, you still have to figure out how to relate to the boss. In John 6, Jesus repeatedly speaks of a relationship with him that brings eternal life with it. What do we do in that relationship? Jesus speaks of our part in one place in this text, our part is eating and drinking him. How do we do that? What on earth could that mean? The people who listened to Jesus when he first spoke those words had trouble understanding them too. And yet what's at stake here, Jesus says, is life, a kind of life that, that we don't automatically possess, that, but that will fulfill human beings, what the Bible refers to as eternal life. How do we receive it? What does Jesus have in mind when he says we must eat his flesh and drink his blood? 
Let's read the text. I'm going to read from verses 51 through 58. You follow along as I read. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. By the way, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, get a CD. There's a lot of background information in that sermon to this text. It'll help you. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I believe he's speaking about what's going to happen on the cross there. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Feeds on me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. All right, what does it mean to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood? How do we do it? I don't think, so we're having celebrating communion today. I don't think we do it by taking Holy Communion. Many people have assumed that's what Jesus is talking about, but I don't think they're right for a number of reasons. For one, Jesus had not even told his apostles about Holy Communion at this point. Are we to believe that he told a large group of people in which some were disciples and some weren't? Are we to think he used the terminology of the Lord's Supper before it had been instituted when it was certain that not a single person would have any idea what he was talking about? And if he was talking about Holy Communion, what do we do with verse 53? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Do we really think Jesus meant that someone who takes communion automatically has eternal life, whether he believes or not? The atheist who goes to church with his wife to be nice and who takes communion because he doesn't want to stand out from the crowd, does he have eternal life? If a fly lands on the communion elements and nibbles on them, is it going to live forever? A couple of more reasons I don't think. I, I, I didn't mean that to be funny. I mean, I, I, I'm, I think this is a very serious thing. And communion, unfortunately, has divided the church of Jesus for a long time. And that is so sad. I can fellowship with people who take a different view of the communion than me and love them and respect them and learn from them. A couple more reasons I don't think Jesus is speaking of Holy Communion. One is, uh, in this passage, he repeatedly speaks about eating his flesh. Uh, uh, and of his flesh is food. But nowhere in the New Testament is the bread of the Lord's Supper referred to as Jesus' flesh. It's always referred to as his body. And likewise, the word wine is used in the accounts of the Lord's Supper, but it doesn't even appear here. 
Uh, there are other reasons too, but I'm not going to go into those. Uh, I'll just mention one more. The, finally, the Greek in verses 15, 51, and 53 are all in a tense in Greek that speaks of a point in time action rather than an ongoing practice, as seems would be the case if it was speaking about Holy Communion. Now, I don't deny there's a connection with Holy Communion. In fact, I think there is. But Jesus is not referring to it here. Instead, communion, which would be instituted later, refers to the reality Jesus is speaking about. That's where the connection comes. One way to approach this passage, it's a difficult passage. People at the time had a lot of trouble with it. It's to look at the active verbs that Jesus uses for which people are the subjects and Jesus is the object. So I think that would be a great study, very instructive to do in all the Gospels. We, we're going to limit it to just this chapter. And so if you're thinking, what, does he, what is he talking about? Let me put it in the form of a question. What actions did Jesus say we can or should take in relation to him? So he mentions several in this discourse, and I think they can help us understand how we relate to him. What's our part in this? The first is the verb come. Jesus uses that word of our action toward him four times in this discourse. We are to come to Jesus. How do we do that? You know the song Chris Reisrich sings, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. It's really a beautiful song. But come where? I might want desperately to come to Jesus, but how? Can someone give me directions? What did Jesus have in mind when he invites us to come to him? If I asked you to tell me how to come to Jesus, what would you say? How can I come to someone whose presence is not localized in space or limited to a point in time? How does a flesh and blood creature come to a spiritual being? But don't forget, you too are a spiritual being. You're not just flesh and blood. You are, as Dallas Willard put it, a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You. Keep the question, how do we come to Jesus, in mind while we look at the other action verbs. Jesus said, we, in some fashion or other, eat the bread of heaven, which is Jesus himself. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. So our first question was, how can I come to Jesus? Our second question is, how can I eat Jesus? What on earth did he mean by that? It's no wonder people were confused and repelled. Verse 66 says that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? That's verse 60. We understand how they felt. What did Jesus have in mind when he said that in some fashion we must eat and drink him? Now, I could tell you in my senior year of high school, I ate, drank, and slept calculus. That would not be true in any fashion. But is that the kind of thing Jesus is saying? How do we eat and drink him? Now, First of all, I think it is a figure of speech. And more than that, it's a figure of speech that people were familiar with. So St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 speaks of people drinking from Christ. 
And in Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, the very first verse, God tells Ezekiel to take a scroll and eat it. Uh, in Revelation 10.10, John says, he took a scroll from an angel's hand and ate it. He internalized it. He took it in. It became part of him. Is that what Jesus is saying? We must internalize him until he becomes part of us. And even if that is what he's saying when he talks about eating or drinking him, how do we do it? So, so one interp- uh, internalizes a, a subject like calculus by thinking about it a great deal, by reading, memorizing, and problem solving. How does one internalize Jesus? Now, of course, people have said by taking Holy Communion. I've already pointed out five or six reasons why I don't think that's the answer. But then what is it? How do I relate to Jesus in a way that is real, not imagined, and personal, not just ritual? How do I do it? So keep those two questions in mind as we look at another action verb that expresses our relationship to Jesus, and that is the word believe. So Jesus talks about us coming to him four times. He talks about us eating or drinking him 11 times in this passage. Oh, by the way, he talks about coming to him many other times in other passages. So it's not isolated just to this one talks about us eating or drinking him 11 times in this passage, but the passage speaks of believing in Jesus nine times. Of the three action verbs, come, eat, and believe, it's believe that is the foundational one. When Jesus tells us to come to him, the way we do that is to believe in him. To, to trust him. Sometimes we get words kind of confused, but believe, trust are the same word in Greek. There's not two words, just one. But we, we trust him actively, not passively, intelligently, willfully. We choose to do it. When he tells us to eat him, the way we do that is to trust him actively, intelligently, willfully. We're not talking about some generalized belief that the Bible is true or that Jesus died for our sins, but about a personal interaction with Jesus himself. Why do I think trusting Jesus is how we come to him and eat him? I'll give you several reasons. First, because in this passage, trust is the fountainhead. So this dialogue chart starts in chapter 6. When people caught up with Jesus... After the feeding of the 5,000, after they tried to force him to be their leader, their king, they caught up with him and they asked him, what must we do to accomplish the deeds God requires? And Jesus' answer from which the rest of this discourse flows is, this is the deed God requires, to believe in the one he sent. To believe in him. Secondly, because Jesus equates coming to him with believing in him. This is verse 35. Verse 35 is a fine example of Hebrew parallelism, where one point is made in two parts, the second part saying the same thing as the first, but with different words. Jesus says, verse 35, he who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. To come to Jesus and to believe in him are the parallels. Two ways of saying the same thing. How do you come to Jesus? You believe in him. Thirdly, because Jesus equates drinking him with believing in him. In the next chapter, John uh, records what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day, which is the greatest day of the feast, the big day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me 
and let the one who believes in me drink. Fourthly, this is how all the early followers of Jesus understood what he was saying. You realize they never went around telling people, eat Jesus or drink Jesus. Instead, they told people, believe in Jesus. St. Paul summed up the teaching on how to relate to Jesus this way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The author of Hebrews used the same kind of language. We are of those who believe and are saved. St. Peter announced that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The prophet's declaration in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, which is repeated then in the New Testament in Romans and Galatians and in Hebrews, is the righteous will live by faith or by trust. In his first letter, John can say, and he may have had what Jesus said in this chapter in mind when he writes it, this is God's command. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So, if this is true, if coming to Jesus and eating Jesus are ways of talking about believing in him, where does that get us? Aren't we left with the same problem, only now we're not asking what does it mean to come to Jesus or what does it mean to eat and drink Jesus, but what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because doesn't just about everybody believe in Jesus in some sense? But just believing Jesus was a good person or insightful teacher or even that he died for our sins is not what Jesus obviously had in mind. What he's talking about is personal and intimate, like eating, like coming to a person. The kind of belief Jesus is talking about nourishes a person and imparts a new kind of life to him, eternal life. Which, by the way, is not just about going to heaven. It's a different thing. It certainly includes that, but it's not just about that. I think the first thing, the big obstacle for us, the, the thing we've got to get clear on, is that believing or trusting in Jesus is like believing or trusting in anyone else. Now, I've got to explain that, or you're going to misunderstand it, but we have to get away from the idea, which has done tremendous harm to people, that religious faith is a different kind of thing than faith in other people we know. It doesn't change because you put the modifier religious in front of the word faith. Religious, a word, by the way, Jesus never used. Jesus and the people who knew him best were talking about real, intimate trust in a person, a leader, a king. Because that's true, faith in Jesus, because it's true that the faith in Jesus is like faith in somebody else. The faith part is the same. He's not the same. But we're not talking about something totally different. Because that's true, faith in Jesus is dynamic. It can grow or shrink. It can be full or partial. We can trust a person in one situation and not in another. My wife can trust me to drive our car on a 1,000-mile trip, a 2,000-mile trip, can trust me more than any other driver in the world, and yet not trust me to fix the car when the check engine light comes on. When I open the hood, she says, don't you think you ought to take that down to the garage? She might trust me to pick out steaks in the store. She would not trust me to pick out skincare products. Now, my point is trust can be real without being complete. 
And that's just as true of our trust in Jesus as in someone else. And so we can ask, why are you faithless? How do we do it? How do we trust Jesus? Let me share an insight into trust, into the nature of trust that has been helpful to me. In any act of trust, any act with your, your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with a bank, it doesn't matter. Any act of trust, a person entrusts something to another person. So the question is always, what am I entrusting in this situation? That something may be money, maybe a secret, and with it a reputation. It may be one's health with a doctor or a hospital. It may even be one's child with a babysitter or a step-parent. In every act of trust, there will always be something of value which one entrusts to the keeping of another. So what is it you entrust to Jesus when you trust him, come to him, eat and drink of him? In the largest sense, there are more specific senses in different occasions, but in the largest sense, you entrust yourself, not just your eternal destiny, but your life now and in the future, here and there. You make a choice to place yourself intelligently, actively, and willfully. You choose to place your entire self, not just your soul, in his nail-pierced hands. People talk about giving God their spiritual life. I hate to break this to you. God isn't interested in your spiritual life. You just have a life, and he wants it all, all of it. It's meaningless to talk of trusting Jesus when you have entrusted nothing to him. Over the years, I've asked many, many, many people, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord? And almost everybody says yes. I need to start asking, have you entrusted yourself to him in any meaningful way? Trust hasn't happened unless you've entrusted something. And with Jesus, we're talking about yourself to him. How can you tell if you've entrusted yourself to him? The, the clearest way is you actually do what he says. So I hope I skydive today. And if weather permits, I will. And it's not just me. Jeanette, Tracy, and Brian are all skydiving if we go. So we get to do this together. But it would be silly for me to say to my instructor, you imagine me, I'm in the plane, and, and I tell him, look, man, I'm putting myself in your hands. But I trust you. And then every time he told me to do something, I said, I'm not doing that. If he said, whatever you do, don't pull the ripcord until you're somewhere between 6,000 and 5,500 feet. And I said, man, I'm jumping at 14,000 feet. I'm pulling that cord at 13,999. I'm not, I'm, that's not trust. I can say I trust him. I can even admit this guy really knows what he's talking about. But I don't trust him if I don't do what he says. 
Now, the Bible teaches that salvation is conditioned on faith, not on obedience. And yet, obedience to Jesus is the one clear evidence that we have faith in him, that we really do trust him. You can't trust Jesus from a distance. It's always personal. Trusting Jesus involves an encounter. That's something I think we often miss. It involves an encounter with him. We entrust ourselves to him, and the remarkable thing, this is John 2.23, he entrusts himself to us. It's almost unthinkable. That's why trusting Jesus doesn't just change our destiny. It's not, okay, you got reservations now. It's not that. It doesn't just change our destiny. It changes us, changes who we are, how we think, what we desire. The idea that a person can really trust Jesus and not be changed by the encounter is just unthinkable. Have you trusted Jesus? And by that I mean entrusted yourself here and now as well as there and then to Jesus. And trusting yourself means you're entrusting your goals, your desires, your plans, your relationships, everything you know about your life now and all the things you only find out later. It's not a religious thing. It's a life thing. And it becomes a different life than other people have. Earlier I made a point of saying that Jesus wasn't talking about Holy Communion when he spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He was instead, I think, talking about a way of internalizing him that happens through trust. But when in a couple of minutes we take communion, we'll be acting out in a physical way the internalizing of Jesus through trust. That's why the, the communion service in the Book of Common Prayer, in that service the priest says, feed on him in your hearts by there's an interaction at the table, an interaction with Jesus himself in which we choose to trust, to entrust ourselves to him. That I invite you to do in symbol and in action as we come to the table. I invite you to entrust yourself, all of you, to him. Let's pray. God, teach us not only how to do this, but how to be good at it. How to recognize when we're not entrusting ourselves. And Lord, by your grace and almost incredible mercy, when we entrust ourselves to you. Would you entrust yourself, your grace, your spirit to us? Lord, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus died for us. We make this request in his name.